Chapter Seven of the King's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King's Daughter by Pansy. Chapter Seven: The Infant's Class. Enter not into the path of the wicked. Del Bronson stood in the cupboard that served as a hall for the dismal church, pretty well squeezed up against the wall to be out of the way of the people, and fanned herself vigorously, waiting for the congregation to pass out and for what would come next. She looked remarkably pretty standing there, in her Boston-made suit of white lawn, pure and fresh, belted with blue, and a blue sash at her throat. Aunt Laura had been very fastidious as to her darling's appearance, and to Dell it had almost been made to appear a Christian duty to look fresh and neat, and as pretty as she conveniently could. I think it is one. I wish the people who take exceptions to us who are on the radical side of the question of dress— did not invariably suppose that because we do gravely and steadily object to the accumulation of silk and lace and flounce and ruffle, and fold and double plates, and single plates, and box plates, and double box plates, and fringe, and gimp, and ribbons, and bows, and loops, and masses of jupe, and mohair, and horsehair, and forests of curls, and braids, and frizzes, that fashion orders for one poor little suffering body to carry around with her, we, therefore, of necessity believe that she must clothe herself in a straight up-and-down gray gown, and never by any chance wear a bright ribbon or a dainty flower. Why must people be always supposed to run to extremes? The young people of Lewiston seemed to think that she looked very nice, or very something, for they stared at her in a manner that made her cheeks burn. Some of them said she had altogether too much style on for only a tavern-keeper's daughter. In point of fact, she was very simply and inexpensively dressed. There were silks there rustling by her that cost almost as much a yard as her whole suit did, for there were expensive silks worn even in Lewiston by people who every Sabbath rustled themselves into some forlorn old pew of the dingy church and complacently endured its dinginess. Why shouldn't they? It was not their parlors, it was only a church." but Dell had about her that indescribable air which marks some people of rare good breeding, whether they chance to be clothed in calico or silk, and which those who cannot explain it nor copy it always curl their lips at and call style. Mr. Nelson came hurriedly over to Dell as she stood in her corner. "'Are you going to remain at Sabbath school, Miss Bronson?' "'Yes,' she answered unhesitatingly. It would seem a strange thing for a young lady educated by Mr. Edward Stockwell of Boston not to remain to Sabbath school. This was her first Sabbath at church in Lewiston. The previous Sabbath a sick headache had kept her all day a prisoner, so that she was a stranger. Well, could you be persuaded to take our infant class? The teacher is absent, and I know of no one but yourself to take her place. The infant class, that was not new work to Dell. She had been one of the sub-teachers in the infant room of the Sabbath school that Uncle Edward superintended. Visions of it rose at once before her, the large, well-lighted, well-ventilated, neatly carpeted room, with its rows and rows of seats arranged tier above tier, all filled with bright baby faces, its desk for the teacher's use, with its large pictorial Bible and pictorial dictionary, the silver call-bell, the box of colored crayons, and always, at this season, a dainty vase of sweet-smelling flowers. At the right of the table, the handsome reversible blackboard, and charts, and illuminated texts, and maps of Bible lands hanging in rich profusion all along the walls. But today she hesitated. She was not given to hesitation either. Her religious education had been, 
do with thy might whatsoever thy hand findeth to do. Not that version of later day, don't do anything that isn't perfectly agreeable to you in all its details, nor even then unless you happen to feel like it. I am not prepared with the lesson, you know. Where is it? Mr. Nelson gave his shoulders a peculiarly expressive shrug. That need make no sort of difference. No one ever was, I fancy, who has taught that class. The lesson? Why, it's anywhere between the lids of the Bible, or out of it, for that matter, if you happen to think of a story that won't hinge on a Bible verse. Dell looked aghast. You don't mean that they have no regular lesson? I, I meant just that. Each teacher revels through the realm of fact and fiction at her own sweet will, hinging her thoughts on Bible truth if she can. A wide sphere, you see, and if worse come to worst, there is always Moses in the bulrushes, you know, though I can't promise you that they may not be weary of it, as the little girl in the paper was. How was that? Have you not seen it? Why, the story goes that the regular teacher of the class being absent, the substitute was doing Moses in the bulrushes, and in the midst of her recitation, one weary little five-year-old raised her fat baby hand, and on being allowed to speak said, Oh, please, Miss Jones, I'm just sick and tired of Moses in the bulrushes. Dell laughed softly. Most of the congregation were gone now, and they were gathering for the Sunday school. Mr. Nelson, perceiving this, hastened his movements. The fact is, Miss Bronson, the infant class is an experiment, and is not succeeding very well because of the inefficiency of the teacher. The one who has taken it is never present three Sabbaths in succession, and sometimes I think it would be just as well if she were absent altogether. She doesn't understand the management of an infant class, and doesn't interest herself to learn. If you would only take it today? Where is their classroom? Up there. Dell looked about her and above her, but saw no chance for a classroom. Do you mean that hole in the wall? she asked at last. Mr. Nelson laughed. Just about that. It would be a pretty fair description of the room, though there are stairs to reach it by. Have you a blackboard? Not a bit of it, nor a chart, nor a picture, nothing but a bare room and some children. Without any lesson or any teacher, said Dell, her heart swelling with indignation. Poor things! Well, I will take the class, and do the best I can for them, and I shall say nothing about Moses in the bulrushes, Mr. Nelson. So presently he conducted her to the hole in the wall, and left her there to do what she could. It was a long, narrow, dirty room, with seats that were much too high, so that the rows of little feet dangled, and ambitious toes tried in vain to touch the floor. There were seventeen children, most of them wee ones, all staring curiously at Dell. Among them she recognized her little peak acquaintance, who was made happy and two inches taller by the gift of a special smile and bow. "'What can you sing?' was Dell's first question, and after much circumlocution it was discovered that while one knew this piece and another that, they could not all unite on anything. They had not been in the habit of singing in the class, and they smiled at the idea as something new and funny. Their teacher immediately commenced teaching them that blessed and world-known children's hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And after a fashion they presently sung it, and most thoroughly enjoyed doing so. Next, a lesson, and she soon discovered that she was expected to spend the precious half-hour in hearing each child blunder through a verse of scripture that bore not the slightest connection to any other verse recited, and that probably they had repeated several times to some of their numerous teachers. Such was not Dell's idea of Sabbath teaching. She looked about her thoughtfully. She had in mind a lesson prepared for her class in Boston, but to teach that she needed a blackboard. 
one of the windows had a white curtain, or one that once was white, the other was curtainless, that suggested the idea that the fallen curtain must be somewhere, and after a short search she drew it out from a pile of fallen plaster and other rubbish over in the corner. Its condition certainly could not be greatly impaired by the addition of a few pencil marks. So her resolution was swiftly taken, and in less time than it takes us to write it, the curtain was securely fastened by four pins to the wall, doing duty as a blackboard. Meantime, every eye was fixed on her in silent and wondering attention. Then she gave them this verse, Enter not into the path of the wicked. Again and again the seventeen little tongues repeated it, until it seemed firmly fixed. Then she turned to the blackboard, and drew two heavy black lines starting together and diverging gradually, going as far apart at last as the limits of the curtain would allow. The line pointing upward was straight and firm, and the lower one was very crooked. Now, little folks, she said, speaking with a crisp energy that of itself would waken dormant faculties, I am going to tell you a story about Charlie and Johnny. They were brothers, never mind their last name, we will call them Charlie and Johnny. What is our verse? Yes, that little boy in the corner said it just exactly right, enter not into the path of the wicked. Now this mark that goes away down to the lower end of the curtain, I have made for a picture of that path of the wicked. You see it goes down, down, and here at the end I will put a large letter H, which shall stand for the name of the place where this path ends. Who can tell me the dreadful name that we don't like to speak or think of where God said wicked people must go? Dell's little girl friend pronounced the awful word in an awe-stricken voice. Yes, said Dell, that is the sad, sad word. We don't like to speak it, and need not. God doesn't ask us to speak that dreadful word very often, but we must never forget that there is such a place, and that God said so. Now all the people who travel this road have a leader, someone who helps them along, and who, when sometimes they want to get away, coaxes them to stay. And beside the letter H, I will put the first letter of his name, S. Who can tell me what the name is? The answer was promptly given. And now, said Dell, let us go up here to the end of the other line, and for the place that the line ends in, I can put another H, and all who can may tell me the name of the beautiful city where all the people who travel on this straight line will go some day. Every eye was fixed on the curtain that was pinned to the wall, and seventeen little tongues shouted out in chorus, Heaven! And the name of the leader? For they have a leader on the road too, and he is much greater and stronger than the other one, and he is always looking out for people who are going on that crooked road down there, and urging them to come up to him. His name too commences with S, but it is, oh, so different from the other name. I will print the S right here by this H, and you may tell me the name. And they were ready, those eager little ones, to speak the name. Savior! And now, said Dell again, for our story about Johnny and Charlie. They were, what relation were they? And every one of the seventeen tongues shouted, brothers, in a way that must have astonished the people in the church below. Yes, they were brothers. Every single one of you remembered. I am glad of that. They both started on their journey up here in this thick line, and for a while they kept pretty close together. They both knew about these two roads and where they led, and the two leaders. Their mother had told them all about it, and of course they thought that they didn't want to travel down on the crooked road with such a dreadful leader, and they almost made up their mind that they wouldn't boys always do. I never saw a boy or girl in my life who really wanted to go on the crooked road. They every one almost make up their minds not to. They don't quite decide it, though, 
for if they did they would be safe. Nobody can possibly make them go on that road if they are quite determined not to. These two boys walked along together, very near the straight line, you see, not on it, because they were not quite decided. But they thought they were, and they meant to be very good, and sometimes they tried. They said their prayers at night, and they tried to obey their mother during the day, and you see how it was by this line that I am drawing, they almost got on the straight road. One day some wicked boys asked them to run away from school, coaxed them, and after a while, don't you think, they both decided to go, and then you see where they went, right down toward the crooked line as fast as they could. And with her pencil, Dell turned the course of their lives downward. But Charlie felt very sorry that he had started, and soon he began to coax Johnny to turn back, and Johnny wouldn't. So, after a while, Charlie left him and went up this way, toward the straight line. He told his mother how he had been tempted and almost gone into the wicked path, and he asked the Savior to forgive him, and he almost decided to go up into the straight path and take the Savior for his guide. But he was not quite decided yet, so he stayed below, so near, you see, that he almost touched the straight line. But poor Johnny, here he is down here. He had entered the path of the wicked. I wish I had time to tell you of all the sad things that happened to him. I'll tell you of one. Down here where I make this mark, there was a place where they sold rum, and there Johnny got in the habit of going. He bought the liquor and drank it. He began to like the taste of it very much. Just at this point an excited little fellow in the corner called out. Was it down to this tavern on the corner where he went? Poor Dell, her own home brought forward to point her story. Her cheeks were very red, but she answered steadily. No, that was not the place, but it was just like that place, and that tavern will do just as much harm to those who are coaxed into it as this one did that I am telling you of. Sometimes Johnny felt very sorry that he had entered into this wicked path, and once or twice he made up his mind to come up out of it, and he got out. Here is the line to show where he went. He stopped drinking rum, and he tried to do some right things, and you see he went up toward the straight line, but not into it, because he couldn't quite make up his mind to ask the Savior to lead him. If he had, he would have been safe. But the wicked people came after him, and Satan tried to get him to go back to that place and drink more rum. And so one day he went down, down, right into that place again, and he kept on going there and doing a great many wicked things. And one day when he had been drinking a great deal, they turned him out into the street, and he lay in a gutter all night, and in the morning he was dead. And Dell's pencil and line pointed in solemn silence right at the edge of that fearful letter H, and the children, awed and impressed as probably they had never been in their lives before, looked and were silent. It was about that time, continued Dell at last, when she could command her voice, that Charlie began to try harder than ever to get into the straight road, and yet he didn't try in quite the right way. He didn't ask the Savior to lead him. He would keep quite near the straight road for a whole day, and then he would do something wrong and go away down like this. But one day, after he was almost discouraged in trying to help himself, the Savior kept whispering, Come to me and I will help you. And after thinking it all over, he quite decided to go, and that very hour he went up this way. And as Dell's pencil touched the firm straight line, her little friend, who had been growing more eager and interested every moment, suddenly broke the stillness by exclaiming, He's in! He's in! Oh, I am so glad! The bell rang below, and Dell's half-hour was gone. She had done her best, with what result God knew. 
End of chapter 7. Recording by Tricia G.